Mark Mothersbaugh is perhaps best known today as the composer behind such blockbusters as Thor Ragnarok and the Lego Movie. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. But today, we explore an earlier era in Mothersbaugh's immense body of work. Rugrats premiered in 1991 as part of Nickelodeon's animated block of Nicktoons and depicted the adventures of a plucky group of infants who can talk, but only to each other. Mothersba served as lead composer for the series for its entire 13-year run, including this theme song, which he composed on a Fairlight CMI Series 2 synthesizer. The Fairlight 2 could sample acoustic instruments, much to the delight of animator Gabor Chupo. Mothersbaugh's magnum opus followed an uneventful stint in an Akron, Ohio bar band called the Devos or something. We'll discuss that historical footnote in just a minute. For now, this is Discord and... Rhyme! Buds and Tomatoes, and welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song. You can visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and our complete episode archive. If you're already listening on our website, you can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast app. And you can subscribe by email at discordpod.com slash contact. If you're on Twitter, we'd love to hear from you at discordpod, so please say hi and let us know where you're listening from. I'm Rich Bennell, and I'm joined today by... Mike DeFabio. Dan Watkins. And Chris Willie Williams. And before we begin, this week I want to start by thanking our newest Patreon donors, Ed and Ben. Thank you both so very much for your generosity. And if any other listeners like what you hear and want to help support this ridiculous project, you can visit patreon.com slash discord pod. Anyway, our host this week is Dan. So Dan, what are you taking us through today? I am taking us through Devo's 1979 sophomore effort, Duty Now for the Future. That's not a Devo album I've heard of. Well, it should be. Uh, so why'd you pick it? I picked it because it's kind of often an overlooked one. I, I've loved Devo since high school, so it was kind of bound to happen that I would make you guys talk about Devo eventually. And the e- obvious picks would either have been the debut, uh, Are We Not Men, We Are Devo, or the commercial breakthrough, Freedom of Choice. But this one's kind of overlooked, and it was kind of seen as a disappointment at the time by both critics and the band, but over time, it's become really kind of a fan favorite. And while I think it's maybe a weaker album than the debut, I think it's maybe a more interesting album. So I wanted to talk about it. So Dan, what about you and Devo? How did you get into Devo and in particular this album? Well, I think like a lot of people born after 1980, my first exposure to Devo was the Whip It video, just kind of encountering it next to other 80s one-hit wonders on VH1 in the early 90s.
as a result, I kind of just never really thought about them. They just seemed sort of like a throwaway novelty. But somewhere near the end of high school, I started to see their name pop up in various publications that made them seem like they were maybe a more interesting and more subversive band than I would have ever thought they were. So I bought the Diva Greatest Hit CD off of Discord and Rhyme's own favorite, now defunct CD club, BMG. And at the time, it didn't really grab me. I think it might have been just a little too all over the place for me. Um, But really, just a few weeks later, it happened that I found a copy of Freedom of Choice at a thrift store. And it made sense right away. Like, it totally clicked with me. So from there, I picked up the debut. And it was... One of those moments where I thought, yeah, this is the band that's just for me. Like, they are right in the neighborhood of just kind of smart-ass guys doing kind of off-kilter rock music with just its own odd twist. And this kind of sent me off on my quest to procure all Devo that I could find. And, uh, yeah, at the time, Devo albums were kind of hard to find. You Really nothing other than the debut and Free of Choice were in print in the U.S., so I had to sort of get these kind of shoddy twofer CDs from the UK. But I got those and sort of just realized that every album was sort of different and interesting uh, up to a point. It gets kind of shaky after a while. But uh, but yeah, the, just a great band that I kind of had written off for a long time that I think a lot of people probably write off. Uh, how about you go next, Will? Uh, how, did, how did you get into Devo? I almost want to lie about where I discovered Devo just to irk Rich. Um, when I was 10 or 11, I was watching my VHS copy of Weird Al Yankovic's very funny mockumentary, The Complete Al. I, I've never actually seen that in its entirety. It's very, very funny. It compiles all of his uh, music videos up to that point, along with some of his Al TV segments that would air on MTV, and some stuff that I think he just created for the, the video cassette itself. And so at one point, uh, the video showed up for his style parody, Dare to be Stupid. I had no frame of reference for it, but my mom happened to be in the room and she commented, oh, he's making fun of Devo here. So on my next trip to Record Town in Universal Mall in Warren, Michigan, I bought Devo's Greatest Hits. And just like Dan, as soon as I listened to it, I felt like I'm home in a way that no other band but They Might Be Giants has ever made me feel. And My Uncle Dave, who's about 17 years older than me and who was so into the band in college that my aunt's nickname for him is still Devo, gave me his old Devo Energy Dome, those upside-down flowerpot hats that you're picturing from the Whippet video when he found out how into the band I'd become, and it's still maybe the greatest gift anyone has ever given me. Uh, What about you, Mike? Well, I I bought Devo's Greatest Hits when I was maybe 13 because I liked Whippet, and I listened to it a lot while I did... 13-year-old things like playing Mario Kart. SNES or 64? 64. Nice. (laughs) And uh, then I kind of discarded them for a while. I guess maybe that was when I was busy buying everything King Crimson ever made or something. But uh, (laughs) I I never bothered to listen to anything else by them for a few years until I I started reading a little about them, and I realized these guys weren't just these silly new wave guys with goofy hats. They were something really unique and kind of important. So I set out to hear as many of their actual albums as I could. And this one in particular was one of the first things I ever looked for when I learned what Napster was. Because the album was out of print at the time, and there was only one song from it on the Greatest Hits album. 
And it was one of the weirdest things on there. So there was this very intriguing sort of aspect to this album. I wanted to know what the rest of it sounded like. And as soon as I heard it, it immediately became my favorite of their albums. As for myself, my parents were into Devo back in their heyday, thanks to their cool friend Glenn, who listens to this podcast and is probably delighted that I just called him cool. Um, And my dad introduced me to them when I was really young, because he correctly inferred that his son, whose favorite song was I Am The Walrus, would be into music like this. Though one thing I have to say about about Devo is that, parents, if you're going to do this, be sure to teach your kids the cultural context of your de-evolutionary satire, Uh, because I got a kind of embarrassing story from high school that elaborates on this. So the room, the room that my high school English class was in, um, the teacher was very popular and like, you know, the cool, smart kids would often hang out there and write things on the board, you know, during lunch. And I came into class one day and I saw that somebody had written whip it, whip it good on there. And then somebody had replied, are we not men? And so I was eager as a Devo fan to join in on the conversation. So I replied with my favorite Devo lyric, Mongoloid, he was a Mongoloid. <laughs> So this requires some explanation. Devo's brand of satire often sits at the very edge of, of, of good taste. And in this case, they're using an offensive term uh, for the mentally disabled to refer to a person who has been dulled by consumer society. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I hope that nobody saw me. And by the time I got back to class uh, the next day, somebody had erased it. So <laughs> anyway, that sounds like a good note to move on to the history of the band, Dan. Uh, why don't you tell us about them? So the story of Diva really begins with Jerry Casale and Bob Lewis, who met as art students at Kent State University and developed the concept of de-evolution. And without going too far down the rabbit hole, the general idea is that rather than continuing to evolve, man is regressing. The idea was kind of pieced together from various forms of pop culture, ranging from things as diverse as a Wonder Woman comic to the 1934 film The Island of Lost Souls. Excellent movie. I've actually never seen it. I tried to find it last night and I couldn't find it. Anyway, the idea sort of began as a goof, but it took a more serious turn uh, when the two of them personally witnessed the May 4th, 1970 killing of four unarmed students by the National Guard during a Vietnam War protest at Kent State. And uh, Jerry said that the event immediately transformed him from a live and let live hippie to an angered activist. And somewhere around this time, Jerry had connected with Mark Mothersbaugh, who was a fellow student at Kent State. And the two of them began collaborating on various art projects. And having played in separate bands, uh, Jerry as a bass player in blues bands, and Mark kind of had a name as being like a playing various synths and kind of more prog leaning bands. It saw he was kind of known as the only guy in Akron with a Moog at the time. <laughs> but they kind of came up with the idea of what Devo music would sound like. And they having these sort of disparate influences, they they play what they called Flintstones meets the Jetsons, this weird sort of mishmash of Jerry's blues based kind of grounded stuff with 
Mark's more kind of out there synth noodlings. So they actually anticipated the terrible crossover made-for-TV film, <laughs> The Flintstones Meet the Jetsons. I forgot that existed. Yep. <laughs> My dad had that on a really hard-to-access cassette, so it was always really special when I got to watch that one. <laughs> And that's my story with the Flintstones meet the Jetsons. <laughs> I want more. So anyway, so after a few lineup variations, they kind of settled in on recruiting their siblings. Uh, you had Bob Mothersbaugh and Bob Casale, who would become Bob 1 and Bob 2, respectively. And also Jim Mothersbaugh and a homemade electronic drum set. And they spent several years in the home of Akron, Ohio, sort of developing their sound and their visual aesthetic. And around this time, they produced a 10-minute short film titled The Beginning Was the End, The Truth About De-Evolution. And it served sort of as a statement of purpose in the calling card for the band. They sent it out to whoever they thought might be interested in and might kind of get them some attention. They Legend has it they sent it to SNL, where Dan Aykroyd threw it in the trash immediately. <laughs> because we know Dan Aykroyd, is a, he's an old blues man. So... But the, the movie featured music videos for the songs Jocko Homo and Secret Agent Man, which established them before they even had a contract as pioneers in the music video format. Jim Mothersbaugh left the band to focus on the pretty successful career in uh, electronics. He went to work for Roland, and uh, he was replaced with a more skilled drummer, Alan Myers. And they began playing shows in New York City and kind of quickly developed a reputation. They had their fully realized identity at this point, and they got the attention of David Bowie, Iggy Pop, and Brian Eno. And prior to having a record deal, Brian Eno agreed to produce and finance their debut album, and then with the help of David Bowie, they got signed to Warner Brothers. So while the debut earned them a lot of critical attention, it wasn't really until their third album, Freedom of Choice, where they really reached their commercial peak with the single uh, Whip It. After producing two more strong albums for Warner Brothers, they hit a commercial and artistic low point with the album Shout. which ultimately ended with the band getting the axe from Warner Brothers. They would go on to record two more albums for Enigma Records before taking a lengthy hiatus in 1990 and not reuniting for another album until 2010. And before we move on, Will, you wanted to make a note about the CD editions of this album, right? Yeah, um, as as we mentioned, uh, this album wasn't available in the United States till 1994 on CD. Um, and before that, the easiest way to get a hold of it was an import from the UK, where Virgin Records, as Dan mentioned, had released it on a twofer disc, along with uh, 
their 1981 album, New Traditionalists. Now, if you're one of our two listeners who still collect CDs, if you happen across that version, please resist the urge to purchase it, economical though it may seem. It is as poor a mastering job as I've ever heard. There, there are moments during, during Strange Pursuit in particular with distracting, staticky digital errors, and the whole mix just sounds distant. Yeah, it's got dropouts, too. Yeah. It's got tape dropouts. It's crap. Don't get it. Let's move on. We're going to take a quick break for some plugs, but we'll, we'll be back in a few minutes to go through the album track by track. Hey, everyone. You've probably seen some new episodes in your feed lately. That's our new series of minisodes, This Is Comp, awkwardly titled after one of my favorite XTC songs, This Is Pop. This Is Comp is a scaled-back version of the Discord and Rhyme approach, focusing on various artists' box sets, giving us a chance to learn the strange and often complex stories behind bands who never released a good album, or an album at all. We're starting with Rhino Records' four-disc expansion of the classic double LP, Nuggets, original artifacts from the first psychedelic era, 1965 through 1968. Episodes premiere on Tuesdays between our numbered episodes. And if you visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod and pledge at the $3 level or above, you'll get episodes six weeks early, a whole three extra episodes in advance. This is comp awkwardly titled in a podcaster near you. Secondly, we want to drop a plug for a podcast we enjoy, The OST Party, by author, music critic, and friend of the podcast, Libby Cudmore. In each episode, she and movie nerd friend Joseph Wade discuss a soundtrack they love or loathe and how well it syncs with the movie in question. So far, they've done classics like Batman Forever, well, the soundtrack, not the movie, the Back to the Future trilogy, and my favorite, a look into that bizarre period when Smash Mouth's All-Star was in everything, and I saw all of those movies in theaters. (laughs) Anyway, it's the OST party. We like it. You should listen to it. All right, back to the show. All right, we're back. Let's start the album. Uh, So it starts off with a pretty interesting track. This is track one, Devo Corporate Anthem. saluting (laughs) (laughs) so this intro is an homage to the 1975 film rollerball a film that i did watch last night And it is a film about a corporate-run dystopian future in which rollerball teams are forced to compete in an increasingly violent blood sport. The corporate anthem is a direct reference to the anthems that are played in the film before the matches while athletes and spectators stand to honor their corporate overlords. Diva said they sort of identified themselves as Warner Brothers' rollerball team. And you can even note that they have helmets and elbow pads on the album cover. But they felt that uh, signing to a major uh, corporate record label was sort of a necessary evil to surviving in the music business. So I guess as a result, you kind of have this cheeky salute to the record label to open the album. And it always kind of felt like a weird reference for them to make. I mean, they kind of had pop culture references before, but this seems weirdly specific. And I don't know if people were still talking about Rollerball four years after it was released. They may have just been big fans. They were Maybe. Nerds. Is it like the Matrix <laughs> and people were still in college talking about the Matrix? 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I watched Rollerball a couple of years ago, and the Rollerball sequences are good, but otherwise it has that, like, 70s sci-fi movie aesthetic where everything is super, like, white and pristine like an Apple store. <laughs> That's a pretty good description, actually. Well, it is. Uh, one little thing that is funny is I haven't seen the film, but just for the purposes of this episode... I went on YouTube to find that sequence, the commercial or the corporate anthem, and it's it consists entirely of a bunch of characters casting leering significant glances at each other. And it just keeps going and going and going until I cracked up because without context, it's just ridiculous. (laughs) That's how rollerball is. But uh, anyway, but the, there's a video for this where it just simply shows the five band members standing in the wind and giving a salute. Musically, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. It is kind of a, a, a neat little opener, just sort of this futuristic classical overture complete with synth cymbal crashes. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cute little opener. Yeah, the classical overture thing make, reminds me of sort of like a dystopic fanfare for the common man. We should put a clip here, specifically the ELP one, because it's more on brand. put on this album once while I was designing at my college newspaper and the students in the editorial board meeting in the adjacent room politely asked me to put on headphones. <laughs> Bunch of jerks. If this song annoys you, uh, yeah, just wait. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. The purpose of this track seems to really be to let you know that they're about to drop something really major on you because it's not enough for them just to start with the first song. They need to open with a friggin' fanfare. And then you have to sit there for like a minute or so wondering what the first song is going to sound like. Oh, man, uh, it's almost the first song. Or you could just skip to track two, but there's no fun in that. No, I love these opening tracks that are kind of just like fanfares that open the album. Like, you know, 1984 before Jump on that album. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I I always thought that was the beginning of Jump for the longest time. Or theme from Flood by They Might Be Giants on the album. Yeah. Flood. Yeah which specifically names the album and and welcomes you to it. (laughs) Why is the world in love again? (laughs) (laughs) One more uh, before we move on, because there's not a whole lot to analyze about this this song, really. But um, Mark Mothersbaugh claimed that he originally wrote it to be Idi Amin's theme song. And he said in an interview, it had lyrics like, I come down the river to kill many people. I sent it to him, and of course, I never got any answer back, so we decided it could be our corporate anthem. <laughs> yeah, the, the sense I got with interviews is that they're often messing with the interviewers. Or is that just Jerry Casal? Or is it Casali? Casali. Um, but no, I've read interviews with Mark, too, where he's clearly just taking the piss, as the Brits would say. There is a funny story about the sessions of this album where the producer, Ken Scott, said that... Uh, they were recording and then a journalist came in to do an interview and he suddenly got very frantic and, and kind of nervous and, and acted all like a mad scientist. And then the guy left and he's like, okay, well, let's get back to work. So <laughs> they certainly played up their, their character. 
I don't have anything else to say about Devo Corporate Anthem, but uh, but Dan, you mentioned the album cover, and I think that we should touch upon that for a second because it's really distinctive. It's Devo. They're standing in just, you know, black T-shirts and sunglasses, and the album is just plastered with the, with barcodes, which were new at the time. Right. And that is a U.S. cover. There is a different U.K. cover that's a lot less interesting. I just think it's interesting because, well, because album covers were treated as artwork at the time. Uh, that's something that's degraded since then. Well, but, what's neat is on the, the at least the original vinyl is their little picture is actually perforated. So you can actually pop it out. Or you can punch it out of the, the album cover and I guess do what you ever want to do with it. <laughs> anyway, now the album has a parental advisory sticker on it. So we further defaced it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even beyond Devo's original intentions. I'll never get used to seeing Devo albums with the parental advisory stickers on them. That's so arbitrary because, I mean, you didn't see one on, say, Voodoo Lounge. Or all the Prince albums that Warner Brothers released. Yeah. <laughs> my mom actually took away my copy of Greatest Misses for a while when I was oh. in middle school because it had a parental advisory sticker on it. And my brother, in a fit of pique, showed it to her just to get me in trouble. But, you know, you got to work really hard to get a parental advisory signed without using an F-bomb. That's an art. That's true. Okay, we found a surprising amount to say about Devo Corporate Anthem, <laughs> but let's go on to track two, Clock Out. place to discuss the production and recording of the album uh the album was produced by ken scott who had engineered several beatles albums and uh, co-produced a few david bowie records and he was primarily chosen because he was known as a an engineer rather than a producer um while they'd had mostly positive experience with uh brian eno they found themselves sort of kind of fighting to contain his tendency to push his own artistic fingerprint on the album. Yeah, legend has it that Brian Eno had recorded a whole bunch of other synth parts to every single song on the album that wound up just being completely dumped when they mixed it down to two tracks. So to kind of get around this, they decided that they had a good that they wanted to do, but wanted someone who could just sort of facilitate what they wanted. So they chose him and the band's been kind of critical of the album in recent years. They Jerry Casale in particular said that they the album kind of deballed them, that it totally neutered their sound. And I've always kind of just taken the album for what it is. I never really had a problem with the production and was sort of surprised to hear all the the harsh talk about it. But the guitar tracks sound a bit restrained at various points in the album. And they did a lot of interesting things where they, rather than just playing a guitar through an amp, they would run it through a pair of headphones and just overdrive them to the point of distortion and record that as the guitar track. I think it's what you're hearing on maybe tracks like this and a few later on. But uh, as far as this out, this song in particular, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a great opus. Kind of you know where the album really picks up. I think as much as I enjoy the intro, sometimes I mentally think of this as really where it begins. And uh, it's kind of nice in an album where the guitar sort of 
begin to take a back seat. You have this kind of extended uh, guitar interlude for Bob one to sort of go off a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, this, this is good. I like this one. It's a good one. I love songs like this. Like every every few seconds, it just throws something new at you. And it ends oh, up, yeah. It ends up being like this sort of obstacle course to test the band's agility. And run through these tires. Climb up this net. And, and go through the ringer and then, like, find the flag inside the giant like, <laughs> pile of <Right>. shaving cream. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And Devo are agile. They take all these surprise turns like it's nothing. And I actually like the production here. It's it's not like a big muscular sound, and it probably wasn't what it sounded like when they played this song live, but it sounds really lean and limber, and I think that fits the songs on this album really well. I mostly agree. Um, there are a lot of spots on the album where the drums do seem almost puzzlingly high in the mix, but it's never actively bothered me because... A, Alan Myers was such a consistently inventive drummer that it's great to be able to hear him properly. And B, songs like Clock Out are such cold creatures to begin with. Not lyrically, or, well, not just lyrically, I guess, but from a songwriting perspective, Duty Now for the Future is all clank and clatter with all kinds of misshapen gears grinding against each other in any given song. And I think that if the actual sound of the album was much more aggressive, uh, it would have all become too ugly a mess to want to revisit much. We should probably say if there are younger listeners around that <laughs> Devo can Devo can be pretty randy sometimes. And this is no exception. This is a really, really dirty song. It's just one workplace fellatio joke after another. <laughs> Here are some examples of uh, me. I got all the secretaries down on their knees. Uh, I got my mammy take my doggy for a walk. There's a verse in the demo version that says, me, I got a six-figure unit that's never been kissed. And then, like, it says, done on all fours because we're going to clock out. And then just think of that title, clock out. I yeah. hear nothing wrong uh, with these. Get it? I, yeah, I used to work as a copy editor, and it still informs my work. And we're trained to spot every penis joke known to man. So. <laughs> it never occurred to me. <laughs> Aside from one or two lines, I never thought the whole song. <laughs> well, now you know where my head is at. Yeah. <laughs> But but if we're done with that, let's go on to track three, uh, Timing X. interesting that Devo is a band that rarely includes instrumentals on their albums and yet on this one you have two and um, you know in concert apparently this would segue into the song Sue Balls which was dumped from the album and relegated to B-side status uh, with Secret Agent Man but uh, yeah, this might seem like kind of a minor song on the surface but I actually really like this it's kind of tracks like this to me that really kind of give this album an interesting character and yeah, I like how the song sort of begins with this lone 
synth line and with each repetition of the theme it sort of keeps building instrumentals on top of it to where you have the guitar double tracking it and you have the drums booming in there but uh yeah i really like this one Mike, you tried to sample this one once, right? It didn't go well. I tried to, yeah, I tried to use it as as the basis for something. It's just, uh, it's trickier than it looks. Yeah, and well, like uh, you, uh, you're saying that the full title used to be timing exercises. Yeah, uh, apparently that's what it was developed as, which explains the odd rhythm. Uh, they, I think, Mark wrote it just to uh, help the band figure out how to play all these almost conflicting rhythms and and things together. Songs like this almost presage math rock, as they call yeah. it. Sorry, and for people who don't know, what's math rock? I guess the best way to describe it would be music that doesn't really follow any particular time signature. It's where the band themselves just sort of have to memorize the numbers of like, okay, we're going to play two beats for this chord and then five beats for this. I'm not saying it well, but that's the general idea. It's It's more random than any sort of specific time signature one of my friends tried to get into math rock and uh, so we downloaded albums by the band game theory which is who are not a math rock band but are a very good weird power pop band so you just assumed that they were (laughs) (laughs) that took me a second yeah exactly (laughs) what i like about this song coming so soon after the first synth instrumental like you know that's kind of a monty python style troll move to me like the way they would just like repeat a joke seven times in a row or like roll the credits two minutes into the episode it's the larch yeah oh yeah (laughs) that's exactly what i was thinking of and now the larch uh we should try to put a clip of that in the show notes (laughs) it's hilarious i'm wondering if they were like trying to annoy people because this is one of this is like one of the first major synth pop albums right yeah as far as i know yeah before this, Kraftwerk laid the groundwork, but I mean, this was like the first like rock band that like were the that released an album where the synths dominated the instrumentation. Devo called themselves Kraftwerk with pelvises. <laughs> That's accurate. <laughs> That's a good line. Pelvises jerking at very odd time signatures. <laughs> yes, I like this one because it reminds me a little of something that would have been on the Residents commercial album. Just this quirky little instrumental that cuts out right as it's getting started and then just throws you into the next song. Speaking of the next song, yeah, it, uh, there's, it has quite a start. Let's, uh, let's jump right into that. It's track four, Wiggly World.
It's never straight up and down. So to go into some Devo lore, the uh, opening lines are from the Devolutionary Oath, which is featured in the Truth About Devolution film. And uh, these lines are directly taken from a 1924 anti-evolution religious tract uh, that Mark Mothersbaugh found by a guy named B.H. Shattuck. And it is titled Jocko Homo Heavenbound, which, as you can imagine, became a source of inspiration for other Devo uh, material. But the, the rules of the de-evolutionary oath are, one, wear gaudy colors or avoid display. Two, lay a million eggs or give birth to one. Three, the fittest shall survive, yet the unfit may live. Four, be like your ancestors or be different. And five, we must repeat. Now, these are apparently, at least in the original tract, were meant as a sort of mocking of the what he called the arbitrary nature of the laws of evolution. But getting to the song... Um, this is definitely the silliest song on the album, I would say, um, complete with mm-hmm. being just overloaded with ridiculous sound effects and uh, Mark Mothersbaugh's mortar blasts between every instance of I do this or I do that. Um, I really like how this one begins as just this odd, fragmented, kind of stop-start, weird song that about in the last minute really locks into full gear as the band sort of locks into the rhythm but uh, it's it's odd, but it's it's really fun. It feels almost prog punky, if that's a thing I'm allowed to say. <laughs> I still don't know very much about punk. This whole album feels prog punky to me, honestly. It's I mean I think this is probably, if not the first example, definitely one of the first examples of what could be called synth punk. Uh, I love all the synth blasts in this song. I don't know what every synth uh, was that they used on this album. I think I saw like a Reddit post or an interview where somebody where I where Mark R. Jerry listed all of them. I'll try to find it. Okay. Uh, well, I, I know for a fact an ARP Odyssey is one of them. And I bought a used one of those last year. Not one of the originals like Devo would have used, but a, a reissue uh, that uh, Korg put out. And it's so much fun to make these kinds of ridiculous, unmusical noises with them. So Yeah, I've got a another anecdote for this one in eighth grade my friend matt and i watched the uh devo the men who make the music video cassette and decided that we would sign our classmates yearbooks at the end of the year with lines taken from that tape and so everybody in our class wound up getting lots of lines from wiggly world and the de-evolutionary oath from me Matt, on the other hand, seized upon the unfortunate phrase from the video, whose context I cannot recall, disease is punishment. (laughs) So in this way, Devo helped my friend Matt set the world record for most inappropriate yearbook contribution by a (laughs) non-Virginian. High schoolers should not get into Devo is the lesson I'm learning from this episode. (laughs) Okay, well, let's go on to track five, Blockhead, Devo's ode to the villains from Gumby. (laughs) Or that's my blockhead cannon.
weird with this one is that uh, Bob Mothersbaugh wrote the music and uh, came up with the title for the song after seeing a sinus spray commercial that showed the uh, the sinus sufferer with a cube-shaped head. And uh, Mark came in and wrote the lyrics in about 20 minutes based off of that. Um, and as a result, you have probably one of the highlights of the album. Uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of similar in mood uh, and kind of in theme to me to Mongoloid from the previous album. And it's a little more subdued and kind of eerie, but... This does feature one of my favorite moments in the entire album, which is Bob One's kind of weird, tentative, stuttering guitar solo that just sort of sounds like he's kind of starting and stopping and starting and stopping until he finally releases into this like really kind of nice guitar solo. And it's one of those kind of examples of Devo doing something that sounds wrong, but yet it works beautifully. easy to write something catchy in the 11-8 time signature, but Devo did it. And I'm also I'm also on board as a big fan of the guitar solo. It, it sounds like somebody's just standing there by the mixing board and hitting the mute button and cutting him off in the middle of every bar, but he's just playing it like that. And this also has some of my favorite lyrics on the whole album. He took the idea of somebody being a blockhead and just went completely literal with it. I, I really enjoyed, too, how the, the music and lyrics work at cross-purposes here. Granted, they were written by different people, but if they were handed lyrics focusing on the geometrical features of a guy whose head is a literal cube, I suspect most bands would pair it with a basic 4-4 motoric beat and call it a day. Devo instead plunks this perfectly symmetrical gentleman into a setting that's unsettlingly asymmetrical, which I think lends Blockhead a lonely, isolated vibe. Yeah, I love that 11-8 uh, time signature. It sounds like they don't like quite allow the song to get started before the before it resets again, which gives it, yeah, that sort of right. unsettling vibe you're talking about. Yeah, songs aren't meant to be shaped like that. Okay, well, we're done with Blockhead. Let's move on to track six, Strange Pursuit. Scoop running in place music.
So we have a song about <clears throat> unrequited love, but since this is Devo, it's dealt with in a completely mechanical, unromantic manner. The lyrics were apparently inspired by some Japanese kissing dolls that had little magnets in their mouths, so they would either attract or repel, I guess, based on whichever dolls you paired them with. Um, I love this song. Like To me, this is one of my favorite Devo songs. It's just got a great, just kind of driving energy to it. And a lot of like really great, memorable lyrics. I'm a big fan of the making up my mind while it lies in little pieces line. Uh, but yeah, this is, I, I really love this song. Cut my mind into pieces. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I've said that. <laughs> well, how about you? What do you think of Strange Pursuit? Yeah, I like it a lot too. It, I was really interested to finally... I guess once I had the ability to get on the internet back in 96 or 95 to look up the correct lyrics for this song, because as you may be able to tell, Mark Mothersbaugh has a tendency to swallow all of his words a lot of the time. In fact, there was an interview that our friend of the podcast, Mark Prindle, did with Dick Valentine of The Electric Six whose big hit song was Gay Bar, which starts with the line, Girl, I want to take you to a gay bar. Girl, I want to take you to a gay bar. I want to take you to a gay bar. He said that was inspired by hearing Devo's song, Girl You Want, whose chorus is, She's just a girl, she's just a girl, a girl you want. She's just a girl, she's just a girl, the girl you want. And he could swear that uh, Mark Mothersbaugh was singing a girl in a gay bar. <laughs> well, light clock out. Uh, the, the lyrics to Girl You Want are filled with innuendo. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, how about you? Well, something I love about Devo is their ability to come up with songs like this that are almost kind of normal, but with something just slightly off about them. Like if they'd, if they didn't have so many weird little breaks in this song and they'd ironed it out a little, uh, it could have been a Men Without Hats song. <laughs> and a really good one at that. Uh, but this is Devo, and they probably came up with the wrinkles first and then wrote the song around them. Also, I'm pretty sure only Devo would think of a line like, I come running like a fat boy in lead shoes, and then stick it in a love song. <laughs> oh, this is a love song. <laughs> but yeah, this, this is great. This, this is one of my favorites on the album. I think this is the first song here that I would fully classify as like synth pop. I guess Wiggly World as well. But insofar as like it's kind of a kind of a rock song, but the synths are what's actually driving the music. Um, and it completely confounded Dave Marsh of Rolling Stone. <laughs> and I think it's a good chance to talk about his contemporary review of the album. He titled it Devo Destroyed and begins it. Devo is sort of the rock equivalent of Kurt Vonnegut taking off from premises it only half understands. So right away, he's not really in my... What? <laughs> I like Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, so right away, he's not really gaining my sympathy with that one. Everybody likes Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, I guess that we're looking at this with like 40 years of hindsight, but come on. Um, <laughs> Yeah, these guys synthesize trenchant experimental trends into a hodgepodge that's compelling only to those without the intellectual vigor to penetrate the band's surface pose to find the real pose underneath. Okay. <laughs> he refers to this song in particular as being built on a guitar riff, at least as old as the Mothers of Invention's Absolutely Free. So I'm not sure what guitar riff he's, he's referring to. Know. There's one like kind of like buried underneath there somewhere, right? I, I think... Well, see, I think the use of the word guitar is confusing there because Absolutely Free, 
the song, not the album, opens with a piano figure that's kind of similar to the synth intro of Strange Pursuit. And obviously neither of those things is a guitar and neither song is, quote, built on it. But that was the closest I could In either way, that's a leap to really pick that out as a ripoff. If that's what he's talking about, that's a real stretch. Yeah. Yeah, Dan, I liked when I um, linked you to this review and you said, has Rolling Stone ever not been worthless? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, he finishes the review by saying, when I finish typing this, I'm taking a hammer to duty now for the future, lest it corrupt anyone dumb or innocent enough to take it seriously. Shard sent on request. We should, we should request some of his shards because he's because he's totally because after hearing us like talk so lovingly about him and Rolling Stone, he's going to just do whatever we ask. <laughs> that's that's a great idea. Let's let's remove satire from the world because somebody might misunderstand it. OK, let's go on to track seven. S.I.B. parentheses swelling itching brain, which I've got one of. signed to Warner Brothers, they supposedly had a pretty big backlog of old songs. Uh, They had apparently enough road-tested material to where they'd mapped out their first three albums, more or less. Um, But when they began to record the sessions for this album, Mark Mothersbaugh had uh, brought in several brand new songs that were more synth-dominated. And I think Jerry Casale has always kind of voiced that these were kind of underdeveloped and uh, this is a particular song that's from that batch. And, you know, it, it's, it's not a pretty song. It's not a catchy song, but it's, I've always appreciated how it's such a effective song and just kind of evoking a mood of just eerie queasiness, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not, so, although this did really make the greatest misses compilation 
I don't know why, but it's on there. Uh, they they picked seven songs from Duty Now for the Future for Greatest Misses. I guess so that was I, like their way of saying, well, we're not going to re-release the album, but here's half of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Well, this might not be the most uh, pleasant song to listen to, but uh, it's certainly effective. And yeah. what, what Devo do here is pretty brilliant because anybody can, you know, if you want to write a song that sounds anxious, you can... You can just come up with a bunch of ugly, dissonant chords and string them together and be done with it. But what this song does, the actual, the first chord you hear in the song is a major chord. And then mm. it sort of curdles over and turns into something that's just really sickening and wrong. And itchy. And itchy. <laughs> yeah, it feels like bugs are crawling all over you. And it makes sense that the synths would really dominate this song because a guitar acts as sort of a grounding instrument. It's something familiar, and it reminds you that you are still here in the world. Everything's kind of okay. The synths in this song are completely alienating, and I think that was probably the intention. Uh, yeah, this is this one has never been one of my favorites on the album, again, because the composition is so intentionally disagreeable. However, I have suffered from debilitating migraines for much of my life in including right now, which is why my commentary has been even more blunderous than usual. Oh, and sorry, I, Will. Uh, it's all right. Um, but I can, I can confirm that Mark has composed a great musical impersonation of a migraine. Lyrics like, got a painful yellow headache, every picture and every magazine's come real, evoke the horrible, nauseating moments when the pain is so intense that you start to see auras and your vision starts to pulse with your heartbeat in a way that's borderline hallucinatory. The song just totally nails that gross, claustrophobic clamminess. I've got one more uh, funny little note. In the early 80s, Devo recorded instrumental Muzaki versions of some of their songs, and eventually they were released as the easy listening disc on the Ryko disc label. At some point, the Weather Channel started using the easy listening version of Swelling Itching Brain as backing music for their Weather on the Eighth segments. I have no idea why they would choose Devo's most melodically unpleasant song to sh You know, I actually bought that uh, easy listening music uh, CD for the first. I never heard it before. I just kind of wrote it off. It's surprisingly good. Like, it's pretty entertaining. It's good background music. Yeah, it's not it's not bad. There's some really interesting variations on <laughs> their songs on there. Okay, well, if we've dealt with our swelling, itching brain, we should go on to track eight. Uh, so we should start with a content warning here. The following song called Triumph of the Will is a very frank f piece of satire about male sexuality and fascism. And we understand these subjects might make some listeners uncomfortable or worse. So please, by all means, skip ahead about five minutes if you need to. Or skip ahead until you hear the next clip from Duty Now for the future. Uh, so this is track eight.
I love that we all just heaved a sigh (laughs) in anticipation of having to talk about this. Okay, so here we have what's easily one of Diva's most controversial songs, named after the infamous Nazi propaganda film and featuring some, I guess you could say, questionable lyrics. Uh, It's kind of a hard one to defend, depending on what reading you're going by of the lyrics. Jerry has denied some of the more troublesome readings that it involves rape claiming that it's really just about male sexual conquests in general. Um, what do you guys think? <laughs> well, I think it's more the narrator of the song who's difficult to defend, not necessarily Diva, but I, uh, but I really liked uh, Mike's reading on it. Uh, why, don't, why don't you go, Mike? Well, I've got, I've got two different takes on this song, uh, you know, depending on the day. But this, this song is, uh, the one take is that the song is all about the connection between male sexuality and fascism. And the connection is that they are exactly the same thing. There is no difference. And that's a, that's a scary idea. Nobody wants to believe that they are somehow biologically evil. But Devo's job is to lift up the rock of your psyche and look at all the little centipedes and things crawling around under there. And you might not want to know about it, but Devo have looked into the void, and now you're going to too. The music here is like, it's like brutalist architecture. It's all cold. It's all parallel fifths on synths. There's not a single guitar in sight. Everything about this song says, feel uncomfortable now. Hmm. Now that's the one take. The other take is that it's also really funny. (laughs) Like, I mean, it's about, it's this meathead dude bro singing about his attempts to get some over this he makes it sound like it's some kind of epic mythical quest <laughs> over the most pretentious music you've ever heard it's it's just ridiculous i can't not laugh at it so well i think i'm i, I think i'm more inclined to fi- inclined to find it funny now that i realize like once i realize that it sounds a lot like sparks <laughs> uh, <laughs> that helps who are a, like a, a Los Angeles duo who would write songs that sound a lot like this. And this would probably be the darkest spark song ever. They don't really like, they don't really lean in this direction, but uh, it, it is kind of along the same lines. Like they do look into male sexuality and uh, the darker side of it sometimes. The, the, the way I see it is that it's like really sharp and incredibly dark satire about toxic masculinity before anybody was even using that term. Like that's a, that's more of a recent thing. Uh, and this was coming from a bunch of men at the same time, the stones were releasing some girls. So, uh, I, I give Devo the upper edge on this one, but it's still pretty hard to listen to. Yeah. It's, you know, I was personally mildly nonplussed by how controversial this song is because I've always, I just don't, think it's that successful I've, I've always found it more superficial and obvious than cutting and i'm not i'm not saying that i wish it were more graphic and i certainly am not saying that i look down on any listener who might find it upsetting at all but i feel like if you're going to try to write a pitch black takedown of out of control male sexuality and especially if you're someone as smart and fearless as jerry casale is 
I just would expect something a little less stilted than lines like, it's the thing females ask for when they convey the opposite. Mm. And it's a little then, on the nose. It, yeah, and then especially on the nose is titling the song after a Nazi propaganda film. It's such. It just strikes me as a lazy, blunt move. I just, I just find the song too clumsy to be blistering or provocative or even repellent. Yeah, I guess I should note that I don't think it's particularly good. <laughs> yeah, it would be, and, it would be one of the worst Spark songs. Well, and for all the songs they had in their arsenal at this point, I don't know why they picked this over something like Social Fools. Social Fools is amazing. Yeah, I can't believe that one didn't wind up on an album. But listeners are free to make their own playlist that replaces Triumph <laughs> of the Will with Social Fools. Or tub thumping. <laughs> <laughs> also, this is this song opens side two. <laughs> Does it? Yeah. Yeah. I looked. I looked it up on Discogs. Oh well, they, then they should replace it with the thin end of the wedge by Purple Harem. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Call back. Okay, I'm <laughs> done. T- I'm done talking about Triumph of the Will. On, let, let's move on to track nine. The day my baby gave me a surprise. It's probably not the surprise you're thinking of. <laughs> dirty, dirty Mayans. Where would you get that idea from, Devo? <laughs> So we have the first single from the album. This one, uh, lyrically, I find it funny that they picked the most upbeat, hooky song and paired it with lyrics about a guy who apparently has his lover waking up from a horrible accident. But, you know, again, this is Devo, so they do things like that. The The author of the Devo book, Recombo DNA, whose name I cannot remember because uh, I'm not good, uh, but he compared this to the St. James Infirmary Blues, which is kind of interesting because it also mm. is about a man who finds his baby dead in the hospital. But it's actually a sad song, so maybe it's not Who's quite that as similar. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I think it was by, I know Cab Calloway and uh, Louis, Louis Armstrong did versions of it that were kind of popular. But this one had a music video, uh, which is pretty fun. And I guess I should say at this point, uh, you know, I'm usually not really one for music videos, but Devo's a band where you should see their videos. They are mostly, at least to a point, where self-produced, and they are really part of the package when it comes to Devo. They're not just some, like, afterthought. Like, they are really part of their aesthetic. So, and this really is fun, this is a yeah. fun one as well. My favorite part of this video is the outro where an animated hippo appears and opens its mouth. And... Uh, what I thought was a cockroach comes out, but I guess it's a potato. That's a common uh, misconception, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was animated, I guess, uh, in a way that makes it look like a cockroach. Yeah, Mark anyway, it, animated starts drum- it. it starts drumming on one of its teeth and is then joined by a potato saxophonist, even though there's no saxophone in the song. <laughs> yeah. It was synth sax. Much like the music video for I'm Just a Singer on a Rock and Roll Band by the Moody Blues. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how we would get our Moody Blues connection in, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. 
<laughs> I didn't know that had a. Uh, I didn't know that had a music video. Yeah, Ray Thomas plays a saxophone, and there's no saxophone. <laughs> anyway, is that a, is that four four right here? At least during the verses, that must have made it the single by default. <laughs> like the time signatures on this album are wacky. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. Uh, so is the surprise a baby? Like, is that the accident? I've never been able to oh, figure that out. Uh, I, I never thought about that interpretation. It's well, I I could never. I mean, I never really paid that much attention to the words. It's just like, like it, well, it's, it's the it's, writing part. Like, uh, I I believe the surprise is that she's woken up from a coma and demonstrated the ability to write sentences after some unnamed accident. Yeah, but it's it's so ambiguous about it that I couldn't really tell. Like, are are they eh, in what way are they being satirical this time? I couldn't tell. <laughs> But this this they're, song they're writing a love song. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> these uh, this song is notable to me for containing the least convincing wahoo I've ever heard, <laughs> and uh, I also like I, this must be one of the songs where they were playing they were running their guitars through headphones because it sounds like it sounds like it's coming through an amplifier about the size of a postage stamp. Yeah, I tend, I actually had a similar response to it as far as uh, trying to interpret what they were doing because. Devo's philosophy has so much cynicism and irony and arty weirdness baked into it that when they do something optimistic or sweet, our first instinct as listeners is often to try to figure out exactly what their game is. You know, for instance, Mark and Jerry claim that Whip It was written as a song of encouragement for Jimmy Carter. <laughs> but the more but the popular misconception is that it's a song about masturbation because that's a more typical Devo concern. And this song also falls between two tracks full of off-putting sexuality. So for years, I just assumed that the titular misspelled surprise fell into that category, too. Oh, yeah. We should note that it's spelled with a Z. (laughs) (laughs) Or a Z, if you're a British listener. (laughs) But uh, the more I think about it, the more I've come to the conclusion that it really is an on-the-level love song. Like, the circumstances of the story may be dark in Devo's usual fatalistic style, but the sentiment feels real to me. And I think that Devo's smart enough to realize that sometimes the best way to be subversive is to be sincere. I like that. Yeah. Okay, well, we talked about this being sandwiched between two kind of controversial-ish tracks. So this is track 10, Pink Pussycat. Guitars are actually kind of back on this song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave Marsh probably didn't get to this one. <laughs> Smash. <laughs>
maybe the less said about the lyrics, the better on this one. Uh, <laughs> we're back into raunchy Devo. Um, although it is worth pointing out that uh, Mark's odd refrain of I'm so stroffed near the end is actually <laughs> taken from... <laughs> it is taken from a toilet paper commercial, which is a uh, combination of the words soft and strong because the toilet paper is stroffed, soft and strong. Can't believe that didn't catch on. <laughs> and we actually have a clip from one of those northern tissue paper commercials. And I want to note that this is Dan's second episode, and his first one on X-Ray Specs also had an ad in it. So, oh, yeah. I like that. <laughs> nice, nice coincidence. Dan likes his anti-consumerist stuff. So. <laughs> you forgot my strop, Mom. No, she didn't. She wouldn't forget northern bathroom tissue. Stropped is specially soft. And what else? Oh, northern stropped is strong, too, and especially soft. Look, see these little pillows of softness? Pillows feel soft. So when you feel northern... It does feel specially soft. Northern bathroom tissue. You can feel it, too. The special softness of Stroft. I feel like every stupid advertising portmanteau has been used at some point in history. <laughs> it has like, to have been. I actually saw milk in the stores. Uh, it, it's for almond <laughs> really? milk. Yeah. Milk. Huh. I will say that I actually really do like the production on this song in particular, because like, the drums sound great, I think. The, the, you have the cool spy guitar riff, and this sort of eerie synth washes it. To me, it gives it kind of a weird sort of sleazier vibe that it already has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love how aggressively annoying this song is. It, just, <laughs> it sounds like it's designed to make people run across the room to turn it off. And a lot of Devo is like that. Like uh, it, that, that makes recommending them kind of hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you got to listen to this. It's so annoying. It's awesome. Right. But yeah, but if if uh, if you're the the sort of person who's if you're like me and you're like, is it unlistenable? I'm all ears. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, this is the sort of thing. The more it wants you to hate it, the more I like it. It it's just Devo don't think like the rest of us. Nobody. Nobody sits down to write a song and thinks, oh, I've got a great idea for a song that goes, pink pussycat, meow, meow, meow. <laughs> and that's that's what Devo are here for. I don't even find this one that annoying, to be honest. <laughs> I'm sort of the same way. I, I look forward to whatever odd thing they're going to do. And I have no idea how Mark Mothersmaw can get his voice up that high without some <laughs> sort of pitch manipulation or, or something. It's... For a song that's about Blake Edwards' The Pink Panther, it's a pretty solid would-be single. That's what it's about, right? Okay, if, if we're done analyzing Pink Pussycat, let's go on to track seven, Secret Agent Man. And yeah, it's that one, kind of. Secret agent man, they've given me a number. 
So while it might seem kind of uh, going back to the well for the band to include another sort of deconstructed cover song on their follow-up album, this song is actually in their set for a good number of years by this point, and it was actually featured in the their you know, their short film, The Truth About the Evolution, and you get a rare performance by Bob Mothersbaugh on vocals. I really like uh, Alan Meyer's odd drum pattern on this one. It's just a weird, unsettling rhythm. And, um, you know, it's, it's not quite as off-kilter weird as the Satisfaction cover, but it's still just off enough to be notable, I guess. Since this version messes with the original song's rhythm and arrangement so much and changes the lyrics to make them more satirical, uh, I'm kind of declaring this to be a song parody, which Mm -hmm. makes this song sort of the reverse version of Weird Al's Devo send-up, Dare to be Stupid. So we found a connection here. Though it's not not so much of a parody, right, Mike? Yeah, I'm not even sure I'd call it a parody. It's more like a full-on deconstruction. I mean, I, I envision it like they took the original Secret Agent Man apart, they found the pieces they liked, and they built a completely separate song around those pieces that was also called Secret Agent Man. It's very strange. It's it's kind of in its own category. And also, uh, part of that keyboard solo in the middle totally sounds like the Emerson, Lake, and Palmer version of Peter Gunn, whether or not they intended it to. Oh, I totally hear that, too. And I like to think it's intentional because, once again, that, that means this punk or punk-adjacent band quoted a prog song. <laughs> Prog, prog, prog. It's so great. I love prog rock. I love carving out spaces for prog rock. Prog rock is such a gift to the world. So Devo kind of had sort of, I guess, created a pattern of doing these weird deconstructing covers. Uh, Of course, again, with the Satisfaction cover, which is probably what they're most famous for. Um, But there's also the less successful cover of Are You Experienced on, again, the Not Great Shout album. (laughs) <laughs> which nonetheless does sort of take the song into a weird direction that you would not expect. And you also have the downright putrid cover of uh, Don't Be Cruel. <laughs> on the also-not-great Total Devo album. Which album had their version of uh, Head Like a Hole on it? I think that was like a soundtrack. Okay. Yeah. It might have done the Meet Wally Sparks soundtrack or something. Meet Wally Sparks. (laughs) (laughs) They're on there. (laughs) Yeah, they also did an equally putrid cover of uh, the old song Bread and Butter. Oh, yeah. The original (laughs) artist, but that one wound up, excuse me, on the the Nine and a Half Weeks soundtrack. Oh, God, really? (laughs) Yep. 
it's it's pretty terrible all the way through. Another proud contribution is Revenge of the Nerds 2 is the uh, yellow polka dot bikini cover. Oh, man. G- guys, Devo gets really bad after a while. <laughs> I should just tell you that now. I just, I forgot about all these covers they did. <laughs> yeah, the recommendation section later will only really be a few albums. <laughs> there's a there's sorry, a cut and sorry Mark. point getting back to this song i think it was totally the right call to let bob one sing this his voice has this inherently sarcastic quality but it's also uniquely light and almost elfin i guess would be the best word so he's able to take these smart ass lines that devo wrote for this song like every night and day i salute the flag and say thank you jesus because i'm a secret agent man and he delivers them in a way that gives the humor a giddy boost without weighing the song down with these big buttermilky gobs of irony. Yeah. <laughs> That's irony, you stupid audience. <laughs> <laughs> I, f- I feel like the, the parody of right-wing jingoism that Devo creates on this cover is 1,000 times sharper than Triumph of the Will. As long as we're talking about the vocalist, so Bob Mothersbaugh sings this song. Usually it's either Jerry Casale or, uh, or Mark Mothersbaugh. Right, Dan? Right, yeah. And I have a hard time telling them apart still. Well, that makes for a good transition into the next song, uh, track 12, Smart Patrol slash Mr. DNA, because it's uh, each each of the three of them get a verse. So uh, we can point it out as the song plays. Uh, so here it is. Ominous rumbling noise. Ooh, I love a good ominous drone. Also, it sounds like Centipede or something. (laughs) So this is Mark right here. Yeah. He's a little less warbly. Yeah, that's probably the best way to do distinguish the two of them. Jerry Casale here. He's been with the world. I'm tired of the Sufi show. He's been with the world. I want to win this prophylactic tour. Afraid nobody around here understands my potato. I think I'm only a Mother's Ball again right here. He's been with the world. And I'm tired of the soup is sure. He's been with the world. I want to end this prophylactic tour. Afraid nobody around here. Comprehends my potato. Yes, I'm just a spud boy. Looking for that real tomato. So this song was originally titled Smart Proletarian, but it was changed because it was hard to sing proletarian. So short of a patrol. This is another mention of spuds and potatoes. And uh, I found a really good quote from Mark where he explains this whole business with potatoes and spuds. He says, um, 
we look at pictures of John Kennedy's family and all these clans with dynasties, and we go, well, these are asparagus people, but we're more potato people. <laughs> the asparagus is tall and beautiful and dignified. And potatoes are kind of dirty and asymmetric. They're rough and they grow underground, but they have eyes all around, so they see everything that's going on. We came up with our own vocabulary, and spud was one of the words. Spud was kind of like comrade. that was interchangeable with comrade, but it could also be pejorative, like, that's good spud, or that's stupid spud. Now, as far as the meaning of the lyrics, uh, Jerry said that it's literally about a strain of organisms that sacrifice themselves so the rest of the strain can live on. It would, it would be humans who sacrifice themselves through enlightened masochism so the whole race will benefit. What? I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> enlightened masochism. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, here's Mr. DNA, uh, the second part of the song. And it's enlightened masochism. <laughs> or it might be the theme song to that DNA strand from Jurassic Park. <laughs> Howdy! <laughs> I'm smiling Joe Fishing. We shot the poles in the hole! is incredible like it's just yeah i mean it's, it's obviously the epic of the album uh but it's just the way it goes from just the odd uh smart patrol to almost like as close as diva gets to a straight up punk song uh and you know yeah the the, the production definitely kind of holds the guitars back a bit and you can see in the live footage from the the men who make the music that it's definitely a bit more raucous on stage so they sound a bit boxed in but God, it's still a great song. It, it does not hinder it to me. This is how you do a, a synth punk prog epic. It's so strange. I remember this one always stood out to me on their greatest hits album just for how odd it was. There's so much to like about it. It's got the line, afraid nobody around here understands my potato. I'm often afraid of that. <laughs> that just <laughs> catapults it into just one of the best songs ever. Uh, there's the guitar solo that functions less like a solo and more like this cool little riff they decided to th throw into the song. They, they did that a lot, Devo did. Uh, there's the part where Mark Mothersbaugh yells out what is either this monkey wants a word with you or space monkey with one window. <laughs> and I've seen people online vociferously defending both interpretations. I have not heard the latter. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, there, are, there, are there great Usenet wars over this subject? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I actually checked the, the liner notes and that lyric is not in the liner notes. So it is up for grabs. Yeah, I've, I guess on the Complete Truth About De-Evolution DVD, there's a picture of a monkey in a spaceship with one window. So that's, huh. I, I don't, I don't know. Did they add that just to, to fan the flames of this? Maybe just to mess war? with people. Yeah. I don't know. But, and also just at the, the very end of the song, the way it just snaps back into the original tempo with no warning, like they just <laughs> slam on the brakes. 
it's such the song is full of great moments that I'm not even mentioning for the sake of brevity. It's a great, great song, and it's one that nobody else in the world could possibly ever have written. Yeah, this is one of my top five songs of all time. It it's got the perfect Devo mix of complete akathesic collapse and robot precision which results Ooh, good word. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it's results in this exhilarating tension. And I also love that it's so catchy while relying not on a melody but just entirely on Mark's, Jerry's and Bob One's music-free intonations. To me it suggests humanity finally devolving to a point where they aren't intelligent enough to keep track of even the most rudimentary melodies anymore. <laughs> and I you know, I, I can hear what you're saying, and I can hear what Jerry's uh, saying about Ken Scott's production here, but to me, I think it sounds great, especially since, as this unreleased demo reveals, the song started life sounding far more like the sickliness of the residents than anything that Devo would have created. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so resonance. <laughs> and we've lost all of our listeners. <laughs> But the residents have gained a fan, so that's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you got to listen to more residents. I like the production on this song fine. I, I, I just, in fact, th- this is a wonderful song. Definitely the best one on the album. I think that I, I listened to the first album, this one, and Freedom of Choice back to back a couple of days ago, and it just seems like the songs on the other two like swirl around your head a lot more than the ones on this one. But uh, that's also just part of the aesthetic of this album, and I don't want to nitpick a fantastic song. <laughs> it is a bit flatter. Honestly, I'm not sure if I would have noticed it if Jerry Casale didn't say it. You know, same with me. Like, yeah. Honestly, it never, never bothered me all these years. And then I read that and I was like, eh, eh, I guess. Eh. Yeah, I've listened to a lot of synth pop and they all kind of sound like this. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it sounds yeah, better than New Traditionalist, which was actually literally damaged <laughs> in the recording process. <laughs> but that's another story. Okay, well, I had a lot of coffee earlier, so I don't know about you guys, but I am on the Red Eye Express. So, final track, track 13.
this song is just like a great two minute jolt of caffeine it's in the album and it's apparently supposedly about sugar and caffeine addiction which are conditions that plague boogie boy and maybe this is a point to point out who boogie boy is and how it's spelled <laughs> right that is b-o-o-j-i boogie yeah, and what's, and what's the reason for that pronunciation and spelling discrepancy? <laughs> My understanding is that it was always Boogie Boy, but they were including a caption in some film, and they ran out of the letter G. So they used a J, just because that's all they had laying around. And hence, the spelling was born. Sure, language is beautiful and chaotic. I love it. Just like <laughs> a, a crappy local bar out front that runs out of N's for its marquee, so they just use an upside-down U. <laughs> <laughs> But Boogie Boy is featured in the uh, the, the original 10-minute short film I mentioned earlier, and it is essentially Mark Mothersbaugh in a mask of a rosy-cheeked blonde baby that he would perform in with a high-pitched falsetto. Uh, he's featured in the video for Satisfaction sticking a fork in a toaster, but he would usually appear in encores to sing the, the closer from his baby crib. But I don't know... Uh, Will, do you have any other lore to add to the Boogie Boy or bo- excuse me, Boogie Boy? Uh, yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> I uh, I actually don't too much. I think you've you've covered it pretty well. As in, in as much as any anyone can single handedly cover the uh, the Devo lore. I'm sure now that Mark Mothersbaugh is involved with Thor, we'll hear we'll see like Boogie Boy somewhere in the Marvel expanded universe. <laughs> I will say you can buy officially sanctioned Boogie Boy masks today for $125 from the Club Devo store. And I want one, but not for $125. <laughs> so Patreon donors get together. Yeah, really. And, uh... Come on, platinum level. <laughs> That's what this is for, right? Yeah. All I have to say is that I sympathize with Boogie Boy and his caffeine addiction. And this is like 40 years later. People drink so much more coffee now, including <laughs> myself. I, I remember when I first heard this album, I couldn't tell if this was a bonus track or not, just because Smart Patrol Mr. DNA sounds like such a big finale of a song. And this one just sounds like, here you go, another song. <laughs> but it's it's a good song. I like it. And uh, as somebody who lives almost entirely on caffeine and sugar, I can understand boogie boy's plight whatever don't judge me at least i don't vape <laughs> does boogie boy vape not that no better not It'd be hard to vape in that mask okay that, that brings us to the end of duty now for the future dan what are your final thoughts on this one yeah again like this is one that's just sometimes kind of overlooked at least by critics i guess um you know fans really whenever i read any kind of like diva forums like fans love this album so i don't know what was wrong with critics or the band for that matter again like i think the debut is a stronger album overall but i kind of think of this as being a more quintessential devo album it it features more of their idiosyncrasies i think and you know it's i don't know it's just always kind of been sort of like the the album i go to more than the first one well, I'm glad this episode gave me the chance to get to know this particular album. Uh, the thing I like in it, too, is that for a long time, uh, one of my leisure activities is to take gigantic, like I'm talking like 15 to 20 mile walks through major American cities. Because what I like to do is uh, take in the connective tissue that makes a city what it is, like the, the parts in between the landmarks. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like taking pictures of like poor people in slums. I just mean like, you know, the boring parts, like just th- that nobody ever sees. And that's kind of how I feel about albums like this in discographies, like the connective tissue that really gives you like an idea about what the band is like, you know, when they're not like churning out hits. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. a big part of why I like this album so much. It's like a whole album of connective tissue. 
It's it's <laughs> all it's all deep cuts. A lot I mean, of cartilage. <laughs> a lot of cartilage. If you want to really get into the gristle of Devo, this is where you this is where you find it. Like it's there was only one song on the greatest hits album when it was buried way deep in the back there. Everything everything else is like every song on this album is like a little discovery when you hear it. It might not be, you know, unless you're a weird person like me, it might not be the most instantly appealing album they did, but it's uh there's a lot of what just really made Devo Devo in it. I totally agree. I think it's it's not surprising that this album failed to spawn much critical enthusiasm or commercial traction upon its release because it is a cantankerous and inhospitable record. And even though their debut had a few songs like Too Much Paranoias that were similarly challenging, those songs were big, bracing bubbles of swamp gas that just broke up what was a comparatively poppy atmosphere. And here those proportions are reversed. So if you're going into this album expecting poppiness or, or if you're coming to it now, the, the cute Devo of Whip It, you'll be disappointed at best. This is probably not the place to start your journey with Devo, but once you have de-evolved sufficiently, you may, like me, find this their most rewarding effort. Well, Dan, if uh, somebody wanted to listen to another album by Devo, what should they listen to? Perhaps Smooth Noodle Maps? Well, you start with that one, um, but then after that, <laughs> if you haven't heard it, you, you need to get the debut. Are We Not Men? We Are Devo. It is everything that the critics say it is. It really is that good. Um, and from there, um, I would get, you know, of course, Freeman Choice. It's even if you're not like crazy about Whip It, that album is actually really, really strong. And it's while it's definitely a more commercial direction, it's still got a lot of just really interesting songwriting on it. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. I guess, more of their straight new wave mode. But uh, but I think those two would be great places to go after this. is 1982's Oh No, It's Devo, which is entirely synth-driven. And as a lover of synthesizers, it's pretty much made for me. Um, and it's all—it's also basically, by all accounts, their final worthwhile album. I haven't really dug too far into the Here Be Dragons that come after it. The reunion is um, not terrible. So Devo got, apparently got accused alternately of being fascists and clowns in their music. So they decided to make an album that sounded like something made by fascist clowns. <laughs> <laughs> So for Devo, that means that their music has been crammed into, like, rigid 4-4, and the entire album is driven by synthesizers, as I said. Also, if you know Devo by way of Weird Al's Dare to be Stupid, his homage to, to them, Big Mess from this album is probably the song by them that most directly inspired it, and it's great. I am not 
was always one of my favorites the the, the, the songs that the when i first got their greatest hits album the, so many of the songs that stood out to me were from oh no it's devo so i was really surprised to find out that it's where a lot of people think they they started to decline i think it's i think it's really cool i think again it's just the synthesizer thing like people are more willing to embrace music like this there is a song that's based on a poem written by john hinckley the <laughs> uh, the guy who tried to assassinate president reagan so uh that's a little hard to listen to again <laughs> actually big mess was uh a lot of the lyrics were taken from this weird series of letters that were received by i i'm almost positive it was the headquarters of a union of game show hosts whoa <laughs> in california well we'll have to double check that and put it in the notes but it was something really odd like that that just i guess made the news like odd letters received and so <laughs> you know, thought it was funny and and used there's a song yeah anyway devo's first five albums are generally worth hearing yeah, yeah they're all go wrong so that was Devo with Duty Now for the Future, the sophomore slump that wasn't, as we found out. Uh, so listeners, what are some alleged sophomore slumps that you think are secretly great? Um, add us on Twitter at Discord Pod and let us know. We'd love to talk to you, especially Amanda. <laughs> so next week, Ben will be guiding Phil, Mike, and John, yes, of Prague John fame, through Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. The double album and the EP, A Something's Extra, that originally came with it. So it's going to be a long one. So be ready for that, Mike. <laughs> I'm always ready. Let's roll some credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream Duty Now for the Future and other albums by Devo at your local Sam Goody, as well as the usual suspects such as Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and Amazon. But if you buy the album through the Amazon affiliate link on our website, discordpod.com, you'll get a great album and, at the same time, support our podcast. So, that's awesome. Also check out discordpod.com for show notes and a preview of upcoming albums. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. Follow me at Zonetrope. Follow Dan at Dan S. Watkins. And Mike and Will aren't on Twitter. They clocked out. Look at him, Scoot. <laughs> Shots! Check out Will's music at disclaimer.bandcamp.com. Editing is by me, and special thanks to our own Mike DeFabio, the other leading brand, for production duties, and let's be honest, a little bit of editing as well. You can listen to Mike's music at otherleadingbrand.bandcamp.com. See you next album, and be ever wonderful. Freedom of choice is what you've got.